Welcome to the Echo Community Church Podcast. At Echo, we're all about being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. And on this podcast, you'll hear solid teaching from the Bible from our pastors at Echo. Thanks for checking us out and enjoy the message. We're going to finish up a series I started just two weeks ago uh, called Man on a Mission. And a quick review, if you weren't here for any of these parts, it's okay, we'll catch you up right now. We started off this series by me sharing with you four different categories into which our time falls into. In other words, the things we do could be classified in one of four different ways. And I'm going to see how many we can remember. Some of you are here, remember the like the, like, the bullseye there is like, concentric circles working towards the bullseye. I'll give you the first one. The first thing, you know, the outermost priority is external things. These are things we do simply because it pleases other people and it makes them happy, okay? Does anybody remember the next one? What's after that one? Uh, Moises, you terrified me when you did that, but I I appreciate your appreciation. What's the next one? Meaningful, yes. These are things we do because we enjoy them, right? Then there's... Man, I got to tell you, like, I, I, I appreciate the enthusiasm. I want more of it. I guess I wasn't expecting it. That <laughs> All kinds of things go through my head when I'm up here, and you hear people yelling out, and it's either you're a Pentecostal church or you're in danger, and sometimes I don't know the difference. Um, but I, I trust you, my friend. So, yes, what's the next one? These are the two we really camped out on. The next thing is what? Highly important. Obviously, my teaching was awesome. Highly important because none of us remember them. Um, these are the things we do because they're necessary. Okay, it's not just to make other people happy. It's not just because we enjoy them. These are the must-dos. They are essential. They are necessary. We cannot skip over them. We cannot leave them undone. They're highly important. There's only one category that is, is even of a, more central than highly important, and I hope you remember these two words. What's the last one? Mission critical. All right. Okay. We, we did all right with that one. Um, that's, and how do you know what's mission critical in your life? You fill in the blanks. If I don't do blank, my future's limited. If I don't do blank, my future's limited. Now, leave that up there for a second. Do you understand that as you go throughout life, things can travel from one bucket to the other? For example, when I was a little dude, I was expected by my parents to clean my room and make my bed. At that season in my life, to me, that was external. I did that to make them happy. I could care less. I didn't care if my room was a mess. I didn't care if things were all over the floor. Didn't care. Didn't create any happiness for me to have a clean or messy room, but I knew it made my parents happy, and it was obedient to them. It was external. When I moved out of the house and moved into a college dorm room and I lived with 39 other men who lived in filth, for some crazy reason, cleaning went from external to highly important to me. I'm like, this filth cannot creep across the barrier. I have to walk past filth to go to the bathroom. I have to walk past filth to go down here. Too much filth drove me nuts. Didn't realize I was a germaphobe until I was exposed to that much filth. So I decided all of a sudden, it is now highly important for my dorm room to be clean, for my bed to be made. Would not go to class until the bed was made. Could not start studying until everything was in its place. It was highly important. It was a main priority. In fact, it started creeping into my young adult years as being mission critical. 
Like, listen, I cannot sleep unless all the things in the refrigerator are lined up the certain way with the labels facing, with the labels facing the only way they should be facing. Right? Well, now see, someone said OCD. No, that's a mental illness term. <laughs> no, that's okay. But no, I always, listen, I know people who are clinically diagnosed with OCD. That's a little bit, just because you're neat and you like things a certain order doesn't mean you're OCD. However, those of you that are doctors in the room are already listening to me and wanting to prescribe me things. Jesus is working with me. But you see, then I got married, and I had to share a refrigerator and a dresser and a sink and a closet and all those other kinds of things. And then we had children. As much as I'd like cleaning to be mission critical, highly important, now it's just meaningful. I enjoy it. And about the only area in the house that I can maintain its cleanliness is one nightstand next to my bed. Everything else has been commandeered by the boys. It travels around. You know some things in your life that in different seasons, what's mission critical or highly important, meaningful, it might change definition over time. Uh, Some of you have learned that something called cholesterol is now mission critical, whereas before it was just meaningful. Fair? You know? My My boys don't have to read labels usually before they eat something. But even today, they're like, Pastor, would you like some creamer? I'm like, well, let me look at the back. Okay, I can't have that. Can't have, no. I'll just drink my coffee without anything meaningful in it, I guess, you know. (laughs) But you understand things move around. I'm less concerned that every one of you can fill a notebook with a complete and exhaustive list of everything in your life that's external, meaningful, I am very interested, as is Jesus, in helping you understand what is mission critical for you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not a decision you enter into independently. Do you know what I mean by that? If you don't follow Jesus, you can fill those things in any old way you want. How you spend your life, your time, your money, your relationships. Fill it all in there. However you want. If you get confused, watch 10 TED Talk episodes and they'll straighten you out. However, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I've confessed that he's the Lord. And when I think about how the priorities of my time, my life, my resources, my relationship ought to be prioritized... I don't fill it in as I want and then bring it to Jesus to sign off on. I say, Lord of my life, do you have anything to teach me about what ought to be mission critical versus highly important in your perspective over my life and help me to align my life accordingly? Now, the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he does mandate some of this for us and then he gives you grace and liberty for some of it. There are some things very clearly, or at least a thing very clearly, that Jesus himself elevates in mission criticalness, criticality, criticulonimbus. No, that's a cloud. Um, He makes it more critical than others. Okay? I, I know you think, Pastor, you had a week to study. I'm still working. I'm still working on it. He puts those things above other things. And if he is the Lord, that's not optional for me. If he is a mascot, if he is a good buddy, if he's my homeboy, Jesus is not your homeboy. He's the king of kings, okay? If he's anything other than the Lord, then I can feel that in any way I want, and he's obligated to be happy with me. 
But if he's my Lord, I have to fill it in his way. It's either one way or the other, okay? Lord is not the Lord of some. If he's the Lord of all, it's everything. He's the Lord of everything or Lord of nothing. So I think it's in my best interest. It would behoove, what, first of all, what behoove? Does that mean to put a hoof on me? It would benefit. Yeah, it would benefit me. Someone buy me a thesaurus. No, I wouldn't use it. Um, it would benefit me to know what it is. If the Lord of all lords and the king of all kings says, I can tell you to do anything I want for any reason I please, and I have the power to enforce it, it would benefit me to say, I would like to know what that anything is so that when I stand before you one day, I can answer with a clear conscience and every moment of this earth, I can be on mission because that's what Jesus was about. From a very young age, Jesus understood the difference between what was highly important and mission critical. Age of 12, he already got it. He knew there's some things in life that are more important than other things. And something can be more important without making something else less important. It's about priorities. Jesus understood. And I'm glad that he did because Jesus understood if I don't give my life as a ransom for Phil Nauer, his future is limited. Your future is limited if he doesn't understand what's mission critical. That dude lived 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, decisions that he was making affect you this very moment. And we all say, he's my example. Yes, thank you, Jesus. And we should. And Jesus says, follow my example. You too need to know what's mission critical because you don't see the future. You don't understand the whole concentric circles of the impact I want your life to have. But Jesus understood, and he paid a spiritual cost, did he not, for his mission. He paid a physical cost. He paid an emotional cost. Did you know he also paid a social cost for his mission? Because there's all kinds of other people that had ideas for Jesus all the time. They were always pitching him new ideas, offering him new job opportunities, waving money and power and authority and fame at him all the time. And many great men and women have been on mission and gotten sidetracked by simpler things than that. But Jesus said, I have a choice. I can keep that mission critical. And if I do so, I'm going to pay an enormous social cost. Or... I can compromise just a little bit and still cross off three of the five, but eat good, live good, have people follow him, be more popular, have a life of more ease and comfort. And he stared those things in the face and said, nope, I need to stay on mission. And he became very unpopular. He was the most loving man who ever lived on the face of the earth and arguably was the most hated man who ever lived on the face of the earth because he stayed mission critical. Had 15, 20,000 people literally eating out of his hand and in one afternoon was willing to send them all away but a handful because he would not capitulate to giving in to what they wanted him to be. Are you staying on mission? Do you know what your mission is? Well, yeah, I came up with a mission statement. Awesome. Do you know what his mission for you is? Well, I, I mean, I'm doing this and obviously it's happening, so he must be blessing. Ooh, be careful with that. Don't ever mistake the fruit of your ministry for the blessing of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, I'd like to preach that right now. Okay, so, so, okay, so listen to this. Here's a problem. We look and say, well, my prayers seem to be working. My, I'm teaching well. That's working. Good money's coming in. God must be happy with me, said every minister who ever fell when their church was running 10,000. The gifts God give you work all the time because they're his, not yours. He'll even work his gifts through a sinful heart. Moses had a staff, not a group of men. He had a staff. It worked. God used 
that staff to be a sign of his leadership, and also his staff could do some pretty amazing things. And one day, Moses is frustrated because the people in the desert, they're complaining all the time. Now, he's got a congregation of a million to three million people, and they're grumbling and complaining. And I would like to say, well, if I were in that role, I'd have had a better attitude. Probably not. Hey, when I've got a congregation of two or 300 people and they're grumbling and complaining, I know what headspace I go into, and so do you. When people you lead are grumbling and complaining. He goes to God, God, these people are grumbling and complaining that there's no water. They want to go back. I'm about to have, I've had it with them. You tell me what to go say. He says, here's what you say. You go say, my children. That's what he says. Go tell my children, the Lord loves you, and he's going to give you water. And then, Moses, I want you to speak to the rock, and the rock, I'm going to make water come out of the rock, and it's going to give them water, and it's going to give all those animal waters, and they're not going to die of thirst. I'm going to feed them. I'm going to take care of them and give them sustenance. Moses says, got it. He leaves a tent of meeting. We don't know what happens next, but he calls the people together, gets off on the platform. My only theory is that somewhere between the tent of meeting and the platform, some other complaint caught him in the hallway. And that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, you remember what God told him to say. I'm on a tangent, but it makes sense here. You told me to preach it, I will. He gets up and he says, you wicked, rebellious people. Now, that's not what God told him to say. But the man of God was frustrated and abused his platform to misrepresent the character of God to people. Just to show you that God is really big and powerful, and he's putting up with all your stuff. Here, have some water. And instead of speaking to the rock, he takes this gift God gave him, and he strikes the rock. And if I'm writing this story, nothing happens, and Moses looks like a fool. Do you know what happens? Because God cared more about, in that moment, feeding thirsty souls than making a fool out of a rebellious preacher. It still worked, even though he was in utter rebellion to God. Do not make the mistake that when you see financial success, blessings in your life, fruitful ministry, the ability to quote scripture and testify and you look good in church, do not make the mistake that the appearance of all those things automatically equals that God endorses everything in your life. Because you can get those things without Jesus too. And his gifts Always work. But God had a sidebar with Moses later on. And you know what he told Moses? Because you did that, you don't get to go into the promised land. And many will come to me on that day saying, Lord, Lord, didn't I strike the rock and water came out? Didn't I preach good messages? Didn't I serve five Sundays even on the months when they had four? I gave 11%. And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. The New Testament says there's a lot of people that think they're disciples who really aren't. But they think they are. So I just want to make sure that you understand. (laughs) Don't just look around and say, man, I've got a house and two kids and two and a half bathrooms and three and a half pets and four and a half jobs. God must be pleased with me. That's not where you look to find God's pleasure. Okay, that was a bonus. All right, let's get back to the, the message at hand. That's for somebody or else we wouldn't have been here, I guess. Yeah, it's not in my notes, but, I, but, it, but it's here. Um, unfortunately, we all know too many stories that bear that out. 
because, you know, when we see great ministries and ministers, men and women, fall and get exposed for their double life, it's not when they're doing nothing. It's when the enemy can play that card and expose them and cause maximum damage for the kingdom. And people say, how in the world did all these people get saved under their leadership? That's how. If God can use a donkey, he can use a flawed pastor too. But man, don't you think that those who get exposed get off scot-free? It cost Moses the promised land. Okay? So don't just chase your gifts around and say, well, man, you know, I'm going to get up one day and I'm going to go to sing and my voice is just going to shut down. Probably not, although I've heard of that happening. It's probably not going to happen that way. It's not like I'm going to get up one Sunday and be like, I can't get the words in my mouth and preach. That's not where I look to find God's pleasure. That comes here, here. It comes in a heart that's clean before him and soft before him, that loves him and wants him and enjoys him. That's where that comes from. All the rest of that stuff you can do without any of this, which is the sad shame of it all. His gifts are just that good. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. No need, anyway, it's a whole other message for, I guess it was for today. Let's get into this. Mission critical. How did Jesus stay on course? Well, I'm, my, the title of my message is Our Most Critical Mission. That's a bold statement because I have to prove to you that it's ours, not just 11 people's, that it's ours today if we're disciples. That among all the critical missions that we could have, it's the most of all the mission critical things. I don't want to suggest to you that God doesn't invite and allow you to customize what's in that mission critical part of your life. But you can't have 15 things that are mission critical. You can't. Well, I can. You can't. Because what about when three of those things want to be done at the same time? Well, then I pick this one. Then that one's mission critical. <laughs> I'm not saying it should be. I'm saying it is. But there are some things that God says, if you're going to be my follower, if you're going to follow my son, here's the mandate. I could, God has the right to say anything to you he wants about what should be mission critical. And in this passage, the second most famous passage, of, in my opinion, second most famous statement Jesus ever makes, he gives it to us. It's probably second only to John 3.16 in familiarity. It's found in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Those of you that have read through this before and might know where I'm going, what do we commonly refer to these verses as? The Great Commission. Have you heard that phrase before? If you've been in church for more than a year, I hope you have. The Great Commission. Have you heard of it? Okay. Every preacher under the sun, moon, and stars has preached this passage. I'm not going to bring you the cliff notes of what they preach, even though I've listened to so many of these sermons over the last month. Every one of them sets my heart on fire. Um, I'll come at it from a little different place today. I just want to look exactly at what Jesus says and what he doesn't. I want to point out some things that uh, jumped off the page and confused me as we read through it. So without any further introduction, you've gotten sermons one and two. Let me give you the final sermon this morning. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. I love this. Anything, if you ever wondered, what do I need to do to be a disciple? What does the disciple do? What do they look like? What's their priorities? It's all in these five verses. Everything you need. The essence, the basics, everything's here. You see it all here. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. So Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So much is packed into this. I've got to ask you a couple questions. 
we skip over this part. I'm very familiar with everything that comes after the word therefore in 19. But what I'm finding is that a lot of times when we teach this passage, we cut off verses 16 to 19. And that to me is every bit as important as what's in verse 19. Because you get some little details here that should jump off the page as as Matthew's recording this. He wants us to know some things, and there's some other things he leaves unaddressed. For example, let me ask you a question. Verse 16, then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Now, let me ask you a question. We skip over this a lot. We never talk about the geographic location of the story. Well, pastor, is there some hidden riddle embedded here? I don't think so. I don't I don't think it's hidden anywhere. I think it's written in plain sight that we're supposed to know. Where does this take place? Talk to me. Where? Galilee. Correct. Now, Galilee's pretty big. Matthew's a little more specific. Where in Galilee? On the mountain. Now, which mountain? That's a beautiful answer. The mountain they were told to go to. By whom? Jesus, oh, pastor, this is just so basic and so elementary. This is radical. I have to prove to you how radical this is. Now, this occurs about how long after Jesus' resurrection? Max. 40 days, good, Bible students, good. 40 days is a little bit less than six weeks, right? Let me ask you a question about yourself. Over the last six weeks, you're like, pastor, I don't even remember yesterday. It's okay, pretend. Over the last six weeks, have you radically changed everything about yourself? Has your character radically changed? No, probably not. Maybe for some of you, yes. but Has there been a drastic, drastic major shift in your personality? No. No, I hope we could say, well, gradually, a day at a time, a week at a time, the last six weeks, I'm becoming a little bit more like Jesus. And that's what we say, well, what does a disciple look like? Looks like somebody who's becoming a little bit more like Jesus every day. Okay, that's what it is, a little bit more. Pray a little bit every day, read a little bit of the Bible every day, share our faith a little bit every day, a little bit every day. How much is a little bit? You decide, right? You decide, you and Jesus decide. Our little bits are different, okay? Then 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus went. Six weeks ago, when Jesus said, hey, can you stay awake and pray with me? How'd they do? How about, how about one of these 11? He said, you know what, Jesus, I'm advanced. These guys, eh, me, I'm advanced. I'm going to go with you wherever you go. I will follow you everywhere. You go to the cross, I'll be there. You go to the garden, I'll be there. You go over here, you zig, I'll zig. You zag, I'll zag. I will cut off anybody's ear who gets close to you. I am, I will. And Jesus said, no, you won't. You have no idea what you're saying right now. And that's kind of characteristic of that guy, Peter. Mount of Transfiguration, I'll say it again. The Bible says, Peter, having no idea what to say, then said. And a lot of us babble on to Jesus. Jesus, uh, I will go anywhere for you, do anything for you. You won't even pay attention to him for the next 10 minutes. Like, what are you talking about? I'll do anything. All right, let's start with uh, rearranging your finances. No, not that. Uh, well, let's start about, let's start about, you know, some of the things, let's start about some of the things that you're listening to and watching. No, Jesus, that's liberty, that's grace, you know, I, I know you, so I'm okay, I'm, imper- I'm more mature, I can be exposed to some, see, you're already upset, so I'll move on from that. Six weeks ago, they couldn't even follow him at a prayer service. 
six weeks ago, they made all kinds of promises they couldn't keep. How about, how about one of those 11? We don't know which one, thank God, uncomfortable mental, mental image. Do you remember how he responded to Jesus getting arrested? First and only biblically recorded evidence of streaking. The Bible says, and I'm not trying to be crass, Bible says, so terrified, ran naked, left his clothes behind. Like the old cartoon where they zip off the screen and everything all falls and you, you see smoke and they go and a blur. What in the world happened to these guys over the last six weeks? Now, Jesus says, you know what? Go to Galilee, go up the mountain. Tuesday, two o'clock, I'll meet you there. You know what they do? Exactly what he says. He's not even walking along with them to keep them from wandering off. We have no, he doesn't climb up the mountain with them. It says they get up the mountain and then they see him. Do you know these 11 disciples show you the very, 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 very basic, non-negotiable prerequisite for being a disciple, for understanding. You have to hear the voice of Jesus and immediately and completely obey. That's it. We have no indication that Jesus says, here, you know, guys, I know, you're, I know Tuesdays, you usually sleep in, you've got other things on your schedule. I'm gonna need you to move around because I need you to go up the mountain because I'm gonna tell you the two sentences that are gonna dictate the rest of your life. Well, now, if someone says that to you, you're like, all right, maybe, maybe I can move things around. Maybe I could, I could take use some PTO over here. I'd get someone to watch the kids over there. I could, I could DVR it over here. I could, I can, I can miss the sale. I can, I can put the hobbies aside. I don't have to coach that day. I can be there. He doesn't say any of that. He just says, go up that mountain. What mountain? The mountain he told him to go to. That's an important phrase. He could have named it, but he said, the important, Matthew wants us to see, Jesus simply said, go climb that mountain, and at a certain time, I'll be there. And they said, good enough. Does that describe your relationship with Jesus? When you hear the voice of Jesus speak to you, do you immediately and completely and trustingly obey him, even if some of your questions Go unanswered. Well, can you at least obey the parts he does fill in? Is that typical for you? Well, Pastor, when you say hear Jesus' voice, what meaneth you? Because some of you think in King James, it's all right. <laughs> I guess I shouldn't make that assumption. Do you know what Jesus' voice sounds like to you? Do you know? Oh, man, if you're still there, stop everything you're doing and go back to that lesson. Pastor, tell me. I can't. I can tell you what it sounds like to me. I can't tell you what it sounds like to you. Oh, no, Pastor. Well, give me a book to read. You don't learn to listen with your eyes. That's like a husband saying to his wife, like, I would love to know more about, I would love to just recognize the beautiful timbre of your voice. Could you write 10 letters and I'll study them? Well, how do you learn what anybody's voice sounds like to the point where you can recognize it immediately and over the crowd and unmistakably? You have to walk close to them for a long time and listen. Pastor, I don't believe you. Okay. Some of you have children. They cry. How can you pick that one voice out of 30? It's your kid. And how do you know what their cry sounds like? They've been crying every day for four years. 
And you can not only hear it above the other voices, you can lower those other voices, your ears can tune in, you can tell, oh, that's a wounded cry. That's an angry cry. That's a someone took my toys cry. And then they'll learn this one about two. That's a fake cry. Well, pastor, can you teach me how to hear my kid's voice better? No, but you can learn. Because you've got to listen. Practice day after day after day after day. Well, how do I, well, I just, you know, I sit and I say, God, talk to me and I hear nothing. God talks to you in all kinds of ways. If you're hearing nothing, pick this up, read it. This is Jesus speaking to you through his word, okay? God speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through his spirit that lives in us. He speaks to us through his messengers, men and women and boys and girls who talk to us. He speaks to us through creation. He speaks to us through nature, he speaks to us in all kinds of other ways. We are not listening. We're not learning to listen. Well, how do I learn? I'll give, you, I'll, here, I'll give it to you. This is, this is absolutely revolutionary. Here's how you learn to hear from Jesus. You want to write this all down. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. Oh, no, Pastor, give me the five points. Just, no, no, that's the only point. Because if you ask him, you're serious about it. Holy Spirit, teach me, help me, and I promise you, or I'll quit. I promise you, he'll help you. I promise you. Because how can you obey and follow someone whose voice you don't know what it is? It takes time. It takes effort. You can't get that done putting in 60 minutes on a Sunday where you don't have anything else to do. It comes through walking close to Jesus and asking the Holy Spirit to help you. He will dumb it down for me. He will dumb it down for you. He will make it simple. He's an awesome communicator. And I'll tell you, once you hear his voice, now what are you going to do with what he tells you? Some of you, you hear him saying, I love you, I love you, you're beautiful, you're my most wonderful creation, I want you, and then you walk away saying, I'm unlovable, nobody likes me, I'm ugly, I'm a failure. Start listening to him. Oh, if someone would just come and encourage me, and he's just lavishing you with love and encouragement, like, oh. So listen to him. But sometimes he's going to say, I need you to go over to that mountain at 2 o'clock, and you're going to say, well, Jesus, I don't know if that's you or the pizza I ate at Echo Eats talking to me right now. I don't know if I agree with what I'm hearing you say, so I might need to unionize with some other Christians who have a different idea about that and get involved in a church that doesn't think that you think that way. I'm going I'm to rationalize. Maybe what you're saying right now, listen, been there, still camp out there sometimes. I get poison ivy really, 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 really bad. Like if it's even in the air and near me, I break out all over. I get a little bit on my finger. It's like it goes into my blood and it goes three layers deep. It is the worst. I hate poison ivy almost as much as I hate onions. I hate poison ivy so much. When we were in Georgia one time, I got a little bit of poison on my finger in about two hours. It was all over me. It was in my eyelids. It was inside my, this whatever part this is on my ear. Don't tell me. Just send it later. This part in here, it was... It was in there. I have a, it just everywhere, everywhere. I was miserable. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't sit still. I couldn't get comfortable. Anything that touched me, the air conditioning blowing on me made it itchy. Hot water made it worse. Cold water made it worse. Everything made it worse. I slathered on all kinds of ointments and balms and lotions. Nothing worked. I was getting desperate. I was in the shower. This is before we had kids. I'm in the shower. I'm having a conversation with Jesus. My wife is literally one door away. We, you know, we had like an ensuite bathroom in our house in Georgia. She's in the bedroom. And I'm in the shower. And for some reason in that moment, I felt like, now this is not doctrine. This is just me going into my poison ivy infested desperation state. 
God brought me back to the story of this dude in the Old Testament by the name of Naaman. Oh, and you're like, oh, yes, pastor, preach. Go down in the Jordan and wash yourself seven times, right? Well, the Jordan wasn't nearby, but I felt God saying, you know what, son, I'm, I'm going to activate your healing in a special way, and I'm going to teach you something else about trust and thanksgiving and boldness. I'm like, Jesus, I'm so itchy. Bring it on. Whatever you say to do on the other side. And again, this is not a Bible verse. This is my personal experience. Subject to human interpretation, and I'm the human in the story, so put two and two together and get at least three and a half. I am in the shower saying, okay, Jesus, tell me what to do. He says, I want you to wash and clean. Wash and clean yourself, head to toe seven times. You already know my story. I'm all into hygiene. I'm like, listen, this is fantastic. Best idea ever. He said, and at the end of that, I just want you to lift up your voice, and at the top of your lungs, just thank me and praise me. And I'm like, oh, but my wife's in the next room, and she's not expecting me to be doing that. This could cause a real uncomfortable moment for both of us, but I'm like, you know what? We'll deal with that when we get to it. I start doing the seven times of washing. Long story short, the third time the hot water was done. We did not have one of those endless hot water things. We had a finite amount of hot water. It was done. I pushed through. And with everyone, I'm getting more excited. My skin is looking clean and horrible at the same time. I get to the seventh one, and I'm like, maybe God's gonna just throw me a bone. Nope, poison ivy's still there, and I knew Based in my heart, just what I thought I was, as much as I knew the voice of God, I was confident with him because this was, I did not think this was some idea I was concocting. Why would I argue with myself? If it was my idea, I would have agreed with the whole thing. I've been like, cool, yeah, I, then this was it. Ah. Well, pastor, do you, really, you know, how does that play out theologically? I have no idea. All I'm telling you is what my personal experience was, okay? All I know was that for the next 15 minutes of cold water, I resisted. I'm like, nah, I can't, I can't do that. Like, you know how stupid I'm going to look? My wife's going to come through the door. She's going to want me to explain. And then I'm going to be in here in the condition that I'm in, covered in poison ivy, soap all over the place, no hot water left for her, and going to have to tell her that I just decided to have a little spontaneous worship service with Jesus. Over I'm not going to do it. And I would love to tell you that I just gave in and I praised the Lord and the poison ivy disappeared. That's not the end of the story. I knew that I had blown it, and I, I finally said, all right, I'll muster out one hallelujah as loud as I can. Maybe that will count, and I did. I scared the living goldfish out of my wife, and she comes through the door, and she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I'm just like, I knew this was going to happen. I, like, I explained the whole thing. I just said, babe, I blew it. Here's what I thought the Lord was saying to me, and I don't know if I'm right or wrong or if I just ate something bad or if the poison ivy got into my bloodstream is in my brain now. I don't know. I just felt like, well, pastor, maybe that wasn't God. Maybe it wasn't, but even if it was, I was treating it like it was, and my answer to the God that I thought he was saying to me is, I am not going to obey you if it makes me look potentially foolish. And for the next three weeks, every time I scratched, that lesson bore deeper into my soul. I'd like to tell you that I do this perfectly. I don't, but I'll tell you one thing. I continue to practice learning Jesus's voice and I have disciplined my heart over the years to obey him immediately not later to do it completely not partially and to do it trustingly even if I don't know how it's all going to pan out his disciples had grown over six weeks to the point because they had a relationship with with a lord not a teacher anymore because if you don't like the lesson your professor teaches you now you can ignore it at your own peril but you can ignore it if you don't like what your employer tells you to do, you can ignore it and force them to have consequences, or you can quit and go find a new employer. But if you have a Lord of all, 
if you have a Lord of all, we forfeit those options out of wisdom and say, it is safer for me to blindly trust, even though it's not blind trust, but to blindly trust what they tell me because they're the Lord. And for me to think that I should hesitate because I know better shows you're not my Lord, I'm still the Lord. I get veto power over the Lord and that diminishes their authority. That doesn't work. Then you don't have a Lord, you have a yes man. They left and they went up the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And then the next thing that jumps off the page to me here doesn't seem to fit with this group of guys that I just said, I want you to follow their example. They had such, they had settled the lordship of Jesus. They trusted him so much. They were so filled with faith and a willingness to obey. He gave them instructions to go up the mountain and they didn't ask for follow-up questions. They went up there and it says, verse 17, when they saw him, they, no, wait, just a minute. When they saw him, how did he get up there? What do you think? How did he get up there? He appeared, maybe. Fell out of a tree, uh, less likely. He was hiding behind a bush. His body had enhanced properties, didn't it? Back before the resurrection body, when they went up the hill, they all walked together. And he was like, no, Bartholomew, come on. Uh, Peter and John, stop, 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 you two stop. Stop it. Stop poking him, stop poking him, stop poking him. Like he was with them the whole time. This time he sends them. He's seeing if they can follow instructions because he's about to drop some instructions on them. They had no idea that on the top of that mountain they were going to get the, the mission for the rest of their life. And sometimes Jesus is not going to tell you, have this conversation over here because that's going to open up an opportunity for the rest of your life. Get up and go to church that day because someone's going to have a word for you that's going to change the trajectory. He doesn't always tell you that. Like, will you just go up the mountain and trust that something's good there, that he's not just sending you around for just he has nothing better to do? It's all connected. He's not a coincidental God. He's purposeful. Enough on that. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now, that's weird. Well, not so. Yeah, when have they ever worshipped their rabbi? They didn't. Because you don't worship humans, but something changed in the way they saw him, and now what are they doing? They're worshiping him. What does that mean? What changed in their heart? They now see Jesus as what? They see him as Lord. They see him as God. They worship him. And that all fits, except for the next phrase, but some of them doubted. Wait a minute. So they trusted him enough to go up on top of the mountain, and then when he shows up again, not the first time they've seen him, but the resurrected Jesus shows up, some are worshiping and others are doubting. Now, that's what it looks like in English. I need to let you know that the Greek language in which the earliest copies of this are in, it's a much more exact language than English. Sometimes they have five or six words that we all translate to the same English word. Our language is less exact than Greek. In other words, I could ask six of you to define doubt, and I'll probably get six different definitions that are all right, but they all have some extra explanation. Greek just says, well, just pick a different word for each one. So you take all six of those words, and, you tra- and they could all be used, and they translate to the same English word. Let me tell you what that word actually means. That'll clear this up and give you some meaning from it. It's actually the Greek word distazo, spelled out in English. It's D-I-S-T-A-Z-O. It does not mean unbelief. It does not mean unbelief. Because a lot of us get the idea, and I've heard it preached this way, that Eight of the 11 were worshiping, and then three of the 11 were still unconvinced. Like, is that really Jesus? Did he really come off the cross? Is that really just, you know, is that makeup or something in his hands? Are we hallucinating? Have we been, you know, have we been hitting the the Passover wine too hard? What is going on here? 
I, need, I have some follow-up questions I need to ask him. There's a couple things in Malachi about giving we need him to iron out for us before we move. There, none of that's going on. That word actually means a state of uncertainty and hesitation. Here's what's going on in their mind. They are worshiping him, and at the same time they're saying, is this real? This is so good. This can't, this can't possibly, this can't possibly... I know that this is the same guy, but is it the same guy? Like, this is, when is the other shoe going to drop? This is so good. There's just a little bit of uncertainty, and that uncertainty is not pushing them away from Jesus. There is some honest doubt, hesitation, and uncertainty in their heart that is not interfering with their willingness to worship their Lord. It's just those two things are existing simultaneously side by side. Pastor, what are you trying to say? It's the first point, and I don't have much more time, so we'll try and get the other ones. But when doubt arises, Jesus moves towards us, not away from us. Because you see what happens next. You're thinking, well, if there's doubt there, I bet, Jesus, I bet Jesus dealt with them and rebuked them right then and there. But then you read the next few uh, words of, of uh, verse. It says, you know, some doubted. And then you read the next couple words. It says, Jesus came and told his disciples. He drew near. He walked closer. He, they were worshiping him sometime at a distance. But it says he came closer to them and he started talking to them even while they doubted. I want you to know, honest doubt does not alienate you from Jesus. Only a hardened heart does that. Jesus is okay with you bringing your hesitations, your uncertainties, your unanswered questions along with you while you worship because we are some complicated mix of all these things. Pastor, how do you get that out of there? That's not consistent with God's character. Well, I don't have time. I'll prove it to you with at least, if God ever could, then he always can. Okay? If he ever could, he always can because he's the same. There's this guy in the Old Testament, only a few of you might have heard of, name of Moses. Moses, yeah. You hear his story? Have you watched the movie at least? Red Sea, beard, we talked about him earlier. Stick. Uh, yeah, yeah, drama, yeah, a lot of drama. Um, God called him at one point to the ministry. He used a, remember, a bush that was burning but not burning up. You know that story? Help me here. I only have a few minutes. I need to know if you know. All right. Do you know what his resume was at that point? Not a good dude. You know that he was a felon? Unconvicted? Oh, yeah. Murderer. Unconvicted. Oh, yeah. He killed a dude. No, I'm just kidding. He killed a dude and uh, made some choices about what family he was going to marry into. Do you know what his father-in-law was up to? What did his father-in-law do for a living? Or kind of not for a living, but as a kind of a, just part of his life. He was, oh, he was a priest. Oh, that's good. Of Midian. Yeah. Of a a false idol. Well, a false idol, legit idol. Not God. Okay. He's hanging out in the wilderness, and he's got also on his resume learning disabilities. He has a speech impediment. God comes to him and says, I choose you to go to Pharaoh and speak, red flag for Moses, let my people go. And we're like, awesome. Now here's the lesson. Moses should have just said, yes, sir, and off he marched. Now here's what you see. Voice comes out and says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. He obeys. Voice says, go let my, you know, go talk to Pharaoh, let my people go, and you'll lead them out. And then, you know, the Jebusites, Perizzites, Hittites, Poison Iveyites, all the other ites are going to run away, milk, honey, you know, no lamb, but whatever, you know, you know, whatever thing. 
And what does Moses do? He asks questions. He's insecure. He, he, he asks five major questions. Won't preach the sermon for you. Well, well, well Lord, uh, uh, what should I say? I'll tell you what to say. What if they ask me on whose authority I do this? Tell them I am sends you. Well, what if I get nervous or afraid or they don't listen? I'll go with you and they will. Do you see God being like, Moses, I'm not answering that question. You march down there or I'm striking you with lightning right now. He sees honest doubt. He entertains the clarifying questions, even answers them. Then Moses says, but, but Lord, I have a speech impediment. I don't speak well. God says, I'll help you. God only draws the line when after all his questions are answered, Moses finally says, send someone else. Now there's rebellion. Here's a person who started off saying, Lord, I want to believe. Help me in my unbelief. And it changes to, Lord, I understand exactly what you're saying, but no. How about in the New Testament? How about someone real close to Jesus? How about his mom? Remember when God told his mom how she was going to get pregnant? We all make that sound like that was just a casual conversation. What if an angel showed up? And what if somebody, what if your girlfriend came to you and said, you know, an angel showed up in my room the other day. And God's going to just make me pregnant without a man. You'd be like, you crazy person. When the angel comes and spills it all out to Mary, do you know what she said? Do you know what she doesn't say? She doesn't say, awesome, I'm in. Let's, let's, let's go. Let's plan the baby shower. What's her, what does she say? How can this happen? I don't know, we've got little ears in the room, so we won't. That's a legitimate question. She's like, God, I'm not saying no. I'm saying, I think I'm hearing you, but this is crazy. I need some clarity over whether I take an active or a passive or what. How do I walk this out? And the angel doesn't say, you know what, Mary, you have crossed the line, you faithless woman. Angel says, here's how it's going to go down. Holy Spirit's going to make it happen. May it be. And it says she held those things in her heart and mulled them over. And over time, it settled in there. When doubt arises, if it's honest doubt, you need clarity. You feel like the Holy Spirit is saying, a time is coming for a change in your vocation, a change in job. There's a part, there's an honorable part that says, Jesus, I think I hear you telling me, and I'm willing to obey, but I need some help because I've got a lot of questions here. Does that mean look for a job? Does that mean wait to be fired? Does that mean just show up late until they get rid of me, and now I'm following your, there's some no's in there. Okay. How active am I to be in this? How passive am I to be in this? Lord, I believe, but I'm hesitant. Lord, I see you, but I have some doubts, but those doubts aren't making me hold back. I'm running to you with my doubts, and I'm open to you bringing me clarity to show me how to walk this out. There's a difference between saying, Lord, I think I'm hearing you, help me obey, versus saying, Lord, I'm hearing you, and absolutely not. Big difference. Number two. The assignment to go make, baptize, and teach is not a mere suggestion. It's an authoritative command. Now, here's, here's what I get all the time with this passage. Well, pastor, I understand. Go into all the world, make disciples, baptize, and That was just for those 11. Or that's for the organized church. That's not for specific people. That's for, that's for the church as a whole. 
The church as a whole is individual people. It's not a building. It's not a book. It's not a video projector. It's not a big place in Springfield. It's none of those things. The church is people. People are the church. The assignment to go make, baptize, and teach is not a mere suggestion. It's an authoritative command. I'm going to say this is the most critical mission. I don't have much time to prove it to you. Other than there is a statement I see Jesus make here that makes me shudder to my core. We don't see it anywhere else in the scripture, at least that I'm aware of. We cut this part out when we teach on Matthew 28, but I want to invite you back into what he says in verse 18. And when have you heard him talk like this? Before he says the commission, he prefaces it with this. And he's basically saying, I'm about to tell you something, but before we do, let's make sure we understand our roles here. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Has any human being ever said that to you? And would you receive it from them if they said that? We have an interesting relationship with authority, don't we? Have, did any of you wake up this morning, and before you came to church, you laid on your face, you lift up, well, I was going to say lay on your face and lift up your hands. That, uh, can you do that? It hurt me. Whatever. You knelt down in your prayer closet, you lifted up your hands, you said, God, you know my heart. I want, I crave, I need more people to have authority over me. I need more bosses. I need more governing. I need more employers. I need more people who have the power to tell me anything they want to tell me and have the, have the ability to back it all up. I'm at a deficit. Did any of you pray that today? No. We have an interesting relationship with authority. We want to have it. We don't want it imposed on us. Most of us don't have warm, fuzzy feelings about the authority figures in our life. Well, who are they? Well, employers. Law enforcement, parents, teachers, the government, world leaders, militaries. Do most of you just generally think, oh, these are just people with my best interests at heart, and I want to just listen to everything that they say and just do it without asking questions? We don't usually want more authority. We want less. And the irony is most of us also have authority, and we think we're the exception to the rule. Well, if I were just this person, I would know how to use my authority to make the whole world better. There, is, there are lords and there are kings, but there is a king of kings and a lord of lords. Jesus says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And this should make you shudder because he's looking into the eyes of the 11 and saying, I'm about to tell you something, but I want to tell you who's telling you this. This is not your teacher. This is not your mascot. This is not your homeboy. This is not your buddy. This is not the one who, this is the king of kings and lords. I can say whatever I want to whoever I please. I got the power to back it up. You can resist at your own peril. Now, when that Jesus speaks to you, if you believe he is who he says he is, it will make you shudder. If it means nothing to you, you don't think he's the Lord. You don't think he'd really expect you to obey him. You think that even though he says that, you can cut all the corners you want and his love will just, 
That's not who's saying what he's about to say. This is the one. He's saying, I can tell you anything, and you have to do it. Now, if you're an employee in a non-unionized job, your employer can say, listen, here's the deal. You're in at work at 8 o'clock Monday through Friday. You leave at 5.30. You get one hour for lunch. If you come in late more than three times or you leave early more than three times, you're out of here. I have the authority to make that good. You have a choice. You can honor your authority. You can challenge your authority and be like, oh, yeah, and if I come in late four days, you know I do a good job here. What are you going to do? You don't have to hire me. I'll go get another job. Indeed.com. I'll go get whatever. Go ahead. Yeah. Or you have a third option. You know what you can do? I don't like those hours. How dare they expect me to be at work on time and stay till the end for those wages? How dare they? And what if you, if you don't like it, what can you do ultimately? What? I can quit. Right? You can redefine the relationship. You can say, I don't want to be bound by your employer authority over my life anymore. Therefore, I quit. And once you quit, is that person your employer anymore? No. You've taken away the authority they have over your life. Now, a little bit different with Jesus. He's the Lord. He gives commands. He gives assignments. He decides what's mission critical. You have options. You obey, and every other option is all in the same bucket. You can negotiate. You can unionize. You can rationalize. You can come up with your own idea. You can try and customize Jesus. Anything in that bucket indicates you are still the Lord. Because you have veto power over the Lord. Jesus says, you can't confess me as Lord, and then when I tell you that I have all the authority of heaven, therefore, and you do other than what I say, therefore, you're saying, nope, I'm still the Lord. You cannot be his disciple and disregard every word that comes after the word therefore because it proves he's not your Lord, you still are. He's saying, I want to remind you, I'm the general, you're the private. Got it. Works in the military, hard in the kingdom. Well, what kind of a God would think that it's wise for me to just do whatever he says? A good and loving one. Well, I know what he's really like, and so I'm going to bury my one talent in the ground. Well, how did it work out for that dude? I got to keep going. Therefore, and here's what he says, go. Don't stand here on the mountain and wait for the world to come to you. You go. Nowhere in the Bible does, the, 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 does Jesus say, hey, world, Hey, unbelievers, in the, in the empty parking lot of, uh, this way. Good world, unbelievers, go to the church. Every Sunday, Wednesday, you show up and hear the gospel. The, he says to his followers, you go to the world. You go. How many people have you led to Jesus in the last 40 minutes? Nobody. Because you're here learning. You're here worshiping. If this is the only place you think evangelism is happening in your life, you've missed the boat. Therefore, Go. Well, what does it really mean? Therefore, go and make disciples. Make disciples. Disciples don't just grow out of the ground. Disciples don't just repeat a short prayer and automatically become disciples. He doesn't say make converts. He doesn't say make, you know, Bible students. He says make disciples. Disciples are made by the church in general. No! They're made by the people that he sends. Well, those 11 were more advanced. No, they weren't. They were knuckleheads. They had 40 days of training. 
And Jesus knew it. And he sent them. And they went. And you're here. Make disciples of all the nations, which is another message I don't have time for. Baptizing them. And this is worth a whole sermon. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus is showing us there is a distinctiveness in the personalities and the persons of the adorable Godhead, and there's a unity. Now, some of us want to combine it down and say they're all interchangeable. That's called oneness Pentecostalism. That's not what we believe the Bible teaches. But we do show that there is an absolute unity. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, God the Father didn't also die, and the Holy Spirit didn't also die. Jesus the Son died. The Father received the payment. The Holy Spirit helped raise him from the dead. But they were all in unity. It's not like they sit around the boardroom table and decide, all right, we're going to have to come out of here with a decision. The three of us are on a different page. They're not interchangeable, but they're in unity. Well, Pastor, I don't understand that to my satisfaction. Absolutely, it's a mystery. You expect a finite God to fit into a notebook, a drawing? It's not there. But Jesus says, you know, there's an importance for believers to understand the unity that exists, the absolute unity the Father and I are one. And Jesus says, I'm going, to send, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send another like me. A parakletos in Greek, one who comes alongside. His, we're in union, but he, the Holy Spirit wasn't sent to earth to die. The Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment of God. He's already doing that. He's out in the field doing that right now. You and I aren't plowing virgin territory. The Holy Spirit's already out there working on people's hearts. I'll tell you a story in a second if I still have a second. I'm holding pizza on you. You don't have to go for lunch. I've got another minute. Here we go. Um, uh, Skip that point. Skip that point. Verse 3. Disciples are made through a lifelong process of spiritual growth that involves other disciples. That's a mouthful. But in other words, it says you don't automatically just become a disciple. There's a making into a disciple process. It's a process. It's a, conversion happens instantaneously. Discipleship is a lifelong process. Well, pastor, there's nuance there. Doesn't it all happen at once? No, it doesn't. There's some things that happen immediately upon salvation and other things that take process. Well, how long does it take? Well, Jesus uses botanical imagery to describe these things. And if you've ever planted a seed in the ground, it doesn't sprout tomorrow. Unless you bought something off a shark tank, then maybe. But usually seed botanical growth is a long, slow process. The Bible talks a lot about olive trees. You know it took 20 years from when you planted an olive seed until that tree could bear a harvest. That's a long time. And Jesus is saying spiritual growth is like a farmer who went out to plow seeds. In other words, it happens gradually over time. Usually. But justification happens immediately upon salvation. Immediately we are made just as if we'd never sinned through Christ. That doesn't happen over 10 years. That happens, boom, immediately. Discipleship happens gradually over time. But Jesus says, you 11 believers need to go and you need to be in some type of dynamic relationship where there's conversations happening between you and unbelievers so that when they become converts, they are in some type of relationship where they can be made into a disciple through my life-giving, Bible-based, spirit-empowered words that will go into their heart and produce change over time. In other words, disciples are not made by putting yourself in isolation. Disciples, disciples are made through a lifelong process that involves other disciples. Well, pastor, do you mean that I should have other Christians in my life? Yes, and not just have them in your life. You need to talk about spiritual things together. Well, that's, that's, that's uncomfortable. Why? You will talk about what you ate yesterday. Listen, I've been around some of you. You talk about some things that make me uncomfortable with each other. We bring up Jesus, conversation shouldn't slow down. 
You need three kinds of relationships in your life. You need a Paul, a Barnabas, and a Timothy. Or pick three other words. It doesn't matter to me. You need someone you can look to like a Paul who's been some places spiritually that you're not, that you can go to and say, can you help me process through something spiritually? And you'll give them permission to speak into your life. They can tell you yes or no, and you'll listen. And some of you, that's a short list. But you need somebody like that. You need a Barnabas in your life. That's somebody who you're just kind of shoulder to shoulder journeying through Christianity together. For some of you, that's a spouse. For some of you, it's a friend or a family member. For some of you, it's somebody you met in the church. There's somebody you can go to, and you guys are just kind of living Christianity shoulder to shoulder, side by side, learning from each other's successes and helping to grow from each other's failures. And then most of us have a Timothy in, my life, a Timothy in your life. There's at least one person that's looking to you to be their Paul or pick whatever word you want, right? Somebody's looking to you for that. And you're like, I don't know. You're the best Christian somebody knows. That's what this looks like. There's a lot more to say. I don't have any time. Number four, we certainly work for Jesus. But I love this. But more than that, we work with Jesus. Pastor, how do I know this is for me and not just for those 11? Well, here's my response to that. Verse 28, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, here's why, here's the part that jumps off the page to me. I am with you always, even, how long? Till the end of the age. Now here's, here's my question. How long does Jesus give his followers, how much time does he give us to finish this out? To get the gospel to all nations, all people, give them an opportunity. That's the assignment. How long does he give us? The answer's in the verse. Until what? Okay, it's not, I appreciate forever. It might seem like forever, but that's not really the answer. The answer is until the end of the age. Well, what does the age, what, what, what age? Until he returns. Some people say, well, but no, that's the apostolic age. Okay, well, let's, let's go with that for a second. In other words, as long as these apostles were alive, he would go with them, and then that age was over, and all the gifts were done, everything. Here's my question, though. When those guys died, if this mission, the timestamp passed, how do you and I in North America hear about him? This was like 100 AD, 110 AD. That's when the last dude croaked. And if Jesus said, I'm with you until all of you die, and then all bets are off, how did over the next 1,900 years the gospel message, they weren't even thinking about North America back then. Right? Does that make sense to you that Jesus, you and I are then living in overtime, I guess. He says, I'm with you always, even to, in other words, here's what Jesus is saying. I will, well, when is the end of the age? Well, let's go back to Matthew 24. The disciples were asking him all those questions all the time. Well, Jesus, how do we know? When is it, when's the end coming? When's the end coming? We're in a period of time I believe is called the last days. It's a long period of time. The apostles were in it, we're in it. We're in the last days. Well, how long will they last? Until Jesus says they'll last. There's 50 books all at Barnes and Nobles that'll tell you how to calculate it. They're all wrong. I will be with you until the end of the age. In other words, this mission will expire. Time will be up at the end of the age. Not in the middle of the age, not 70, at the end of the age. What age? Don't know. I think it means the end of time before that Jesus comes back. We can use all kinds of language. It's inexact. But I think it'll be obvious. Because it will be marked by no more opportunities for the gospel to go out. It will be too late for people to act on what they hear. So here we are. 
Is Jesus still out there being with people who are taking out the gospel? Yes. So that command, I believe, is very clear. It's to any of his followers who are alive in an age when we can still get the gospel out, where we can still go, where we can still make, where we can still teach, we can still baptize, and there's opportunity for people to respond and say yes. And if the King of kings and Lord of lords says, I have all power and authority, therefore go, that falls on me and it falls on you. Does your life reflect that level of urgency about the going, the making, the teaching, the baptizing, the obeying? Is it part of your prayer life to say, God, I don't feel like I'm up for this assignment, but you have called me, make me over. I don't want to go by myself. You don't. You don't. Stop thinking that. We work with Jesus. I'm with you. Come work with me. Come work. I'm with. He makes it so easy. He gives confidence. When you work with somebody and something that seems over your head, a whole lot different than working for somebody. Five years ago, six years ago, a tree fell on our house, smashed it to the ground, two-thirds of it. And my wife and my son Chase and I were displaced from May until Christmas, uh, lived in four different hotels and an apartment while they rebuilt our home. And when the dust had settled, they pretty much put it back the way we wanted it, except there was no deck on the back. It's not a must-have. But I kind of like, oh, it would have been nice. And a lot of people say, well, why don't you build your own deck? I'm like, do you know me at all? I struggled to put together Ikea furniture. Could you imagine me with a desk? Well, yeah, because, okay, right, Ikea furniture, where did they learn to draw stick figures? I've seen no human that looks like those orbs. And anyway, I'm sorry, that's totally not for this morning, and I apologize to Ikea. We still buy your furniture because it's cheap. When my boys break a $5 coffee table, we can replace it. Uh, but I was like, ah, I don't know that. I, I would be super intimidated to, like, I mean, I can handle, like, a Pinewood Derby car and some things like that, but a deck, probably not. Well, unbeknownst to me, some men who, you know who you are, but I'm not going to name you out of fear of other people would solicit the same offer. A couple men from the church came to me and said, you know what, Pastor, God put it on our heart to help you build a deck on the back of your house, and if you'll pay for the materials, we'll supply all the labor. And we, I'm like, this is, yeah, glory. So I paid for the materials, and, you know, over, like, four weekends, like, 10, 12, 15 guys are showing up. And they're doing all these things. And they're like, oh, pastor, we got it. You don't even, I'm like, I'm not going to sit in my house drinking iced tea while friends from the church are outside sweating. I'm, like, I'm going to go out and at least try and look like I'm helpful. And like they were doing all these, you know, they're like, this is simple. We do it every day. Someone like me is like concrete. No, I don't mess with concrete. Like that's permanent. Like you can't just right click and delete that. They're putting in footers and building things. They're measuring. And every now and again, they were so nice. They'd be like, you want to come over and put in this last plank? I'm like, really? Like, yeah, just put the thing in. They're like, oh, it looks great. I didn't have to do any of the heavy lifting. But, man, did I feel like, I look at I built a, helping the guys build a deck today. Look at all that out there. Yeah. Put a few of the things over there, and, the, and I, they let me carry the bag to the trash over there. And they had me sweep off the thing over here. And I got to carry the leftover wood to the... It was so much more fulfilling and less intimidating for me to work with them rather than tackle this whole thing by myself. It was actually fun. They did the heavy lifting, and I came along and got to have some meaningful part that I didn't lay the groundwork for. It was, oh, I heard that alarm. You're going to have to hold off for a second, man. I'm telling you, that doesn't work for me. That is not my phone. I rebuke that in the name of Jesus. <laughs> that is not my timer. You got pizza out there, so you shut that thing down. Goodness sakes alive. Yeah, I know. I just figured out a lot about somebody here. We're going to have a conversation this week. 
<laughs> those things don't work on pastors. We're like, we're like the people that can't hear those, those high-pitched sounds. So let me tell you how that really works spiritually. Uh, Friday, you know, we, we do this thing for my wife's birthday where, you know, she just recharges in solitude. And so we're like, listen, you book a hotel. She went way across. She went to Middle River. But, I mean, she didn't go that far away. You book a hotel. You take, you know, you go over there. They'll take you Friday. Sleep overnight there Saturday. She just needs space where someone's not, like, just mom, 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 mom. And if she's in the house, it ain't going to happen. So you go over there, you chill, you do whatever. I got the boys. And uh, I always have fun with them. We had gone out Friday, and I was like, where do you guys want to go? We want to go to the new Wawa and play in the menu. I'm like, really? Like, you're <laughs> different kids. I'm like, it's going to cost me $35, but all right, you know, like. So, you know, we got their Wawa, and we're driving home. And I get a, I get a text message from one of Chase's friends' dads who lives in our neighborhood. And, um, and the dad was like, hey, you know, can Chase come out and play with my son? And I think, man, I haven't heard from these guys in like nine months. And so I was like, it's cool to hear from them. I'm like, man, we, we got dinner. If I tell Chase that he can go play with a friend, then the five-year-old's going, I want a friend to come play with me too. And I'm like, I was just like, you know what? I just think that, yeah, we'll be home probably about 30 minutes. When Chase is done eating, I'll send him out and they can play. So we get home, we set up, and I hear on the beautiful deck y'all built me so my neighbor boy can come over there and bang on the door i hear the boom 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 up the steps i'm like it's been five minutes i told him 30 ching 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 i know exactly who it is a little neighbor kid and i'm not wanting to be nice in that moment but i'm i mean i open the door hey buddy can chase come out and play and i'm like man why do you have to have a voice like that you'd be so much more likable if you know i'm just kidding he can chase him out. i say i said absolutely as soon as he's done eating he can come out he says oh and one other thing one other thing i uh, i want to come to your church Okay, first of all, guilt. <laughs> I'm not making this up. My 10-year-old gets down off of his seat. He didn't even turn around to acknowledge. He, gets, he comes over the road. Because my 10-year-old, one of his biggest frustrations, one of his biggest discouragements is there's three of his friends he's invited to every event we've had here, and none of them have ever said yes. It's been five years. He's like, of course. He goes, do you have something called Sunday school? And Chase is like, well, actually, I'm like, yes, we do. We got it. We call it something different. We got it. You know? And he's like, okay, can you, text, can you text my dad and my granddad the address? And I'm like, we've not seen him in nine months. We've not been asking him every week. Do you know what? Holy Spirit's been working on that little boy's heart. Why would the second thing out of his mouth after seeing me in nine months be, and oh, by the way, I want to come to your church. Now, I didn't use his name out of fear that perhaps his family would watch this and be like, I'm just telling you, Holy Spirit's out there building decks all the time. You're not out there. Listen, I can tell you story after story. I'm unloading a, 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 the bat bag out of my car at Little League on Monday night. I'm getting ready to drag that forsaken bag. That, this is why no one wants to coach because you've got to drag all the stuff up and down the hill. I'm dragging all this stuff. I, I walk across, and I don't even see. I hear a female voice from a car. Coach Phil, Coach Phil. And I look and I kind of recognize she goes, why didn't you answer my Facebook message? I'm like, this is not how we begin a conversation. I said, well, I left social media a, a, a while ago. Well, don't you still have Messenger? I'm like, we're like, this is getting hostile. I'm like, I, I'm sorry. She's like, oh, I just missed you. I wanted to know why you didn't draft my son on your team. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, this is delightful. How have you been? You know, I know you had another baby. Everything's going. And she goes, oh, I'm just giving you a hard time. Oh, by the way, are you going to do VBS this summer? My son would love to come. The Holy Spirit is working. Jesus is working. He's not saying, go out in the field and go talk to this person I've never dealt with before and see how far you get. He's saying, that, 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 this is ripe. It's growing over here. I just need a little watering over here. A little. Listen, when you understand, he says, I'll be with you always. 
I'll be with you always. If you believe he's the Lord, you believe he loves the lost, then you can step up and say, I have no idea where this is going, but it's going to be fun. This is going to, work. This is going to be an adventure. I am not by myself. I want you to know we don't save people. Jesus does. He's been working on people's hearts. And I'm telling you, even your pastor, I'm just like, really? Like two times this week, did God know I was preaching on Sunday? Like, I just like, I'm just, I just sit back and I'm amazed. In moments, in moments, my spirit wasn't immediately tuned to an evangelistic opportunity. Well, pastor, shame on you, man of God. I'm sorry. He's working on me. But I did snap to it pretty quick because he said, can I be at your church? I'm like, okay, dummy, like right here. Like, come on, like, stop it. Just just think Jesus for a second. I was just like, you know, we talk with him and exchange information. You know, he, he thinks it's crazy that we're having pizza at church today. You know, I think his only experience is in a different kind of a church. And really, you're allowed to have in there? Would you, you don't, he, I'm just, I love it. I love it so much. We go to work with Jesus. We don't just work for him. We work with him. Amen? Amen. Worship team, hurry back. Hurry back. I mean, don't run to the point where you trip on each other, but. I went into overtime today. Thanks for your buzzer over there. I'm definitely concerned about whether the children's leaders still like me or not. So I'm praying all your kids are just being good little disciples back there. This is very different from the 9 a.m. service. (laughs) Hey, if you're outside the kingdom of God, I want you to come in. Come on in. Come on in. Pastor, I need to clean myself up first. Nope, can't do it. You can't clean yourself up enough for Jesus to love you. That's not a requirement. Here's the requirement. You have to come as you are. Really? Oh, yeah. Well, what if God knew? He already does. You're not ever going to surprise him with a revelation. He knows. The fact you're even hearing this today is because this church is all about what we read today. We're about being and making disciples. We're not primarily a real estate company. We're not a home renovation, although I will say the people that renovated, the gifted people in this church did a great job at uh, this facility. But we're not in the real estate business. We're not in the hedge fund business. We're not in the fundraising business. We're not in the facility management business. We're not in the graphic design business. We do a lot of those things. That's not why we're here. We're here because we want to make it known what Jesus has done for you. And you don't have to do anymore. You just need to bring your belief to him and you you bring your willingness to repent. Repent means to turn away from how you're living and turn to Jesus' lordship. You just have to believe that you need to be saved, that Jesus can save you and he will save you. And then what do I do? Just tell him. Use your words. Tell him. Ask him. Confess to him. Just tell him right now. He'll hear you. Tell him you want to be saved. Own your faults. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his love. Enter into his kingdom through Jesus. Just tell him. Use your words. Pastor, can you be more specific? Sure, you can pray a simple prayer. Uh, Jesus, save me. I've sinned. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I don't want to live the way I've been living. I want to live your way. You're my Lord. Holy Spirit, come live in me. Clean me up. Help me grow. Help me hear your voice. And if you mean that, he hears it and he will and he is. In fact, some of you right now are experiencing salvation. And with every head bowed, every eye closed, if you 
asked Jesus to save you this morning, and you know that he has, you don't have to do another thing. You're saved. We hope you enjoyed the Echo Community Church podcast. If you prayed that prayer at the end of the message and began following Jesus Christ today, we'd love to celebrate with you and give you some simple next steps to take as you begin your new life with him. Just email us at info at echochurchmd.com to let us know. If you'd like more information about Echo Community Church, you can check out our Facebook page or our website, echochurchonline.com. Thanks so much for listening.